Uh, well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Um, I'm sure you know what today is, right? <laughs> Sunday. It's, uh, it's the first day of summer. <laughs> it feels like the first day of summer, right? Um, it's the lunar, lunar New Year's Eve. Lunar, we'll call it lunar because there are many Asian um, cultures that's, that celebrate the lunar New Year. It is Chinese New Year, but it is also Tet and you know, those, other, those other celebrations. Um, but it's also... Super Bowl. Thank you. I think uh, somebody said it over here already. It's Super Bowl Sunday, right? Yes. How many of you are rooting for Peyton Manning and the Denver Broncos? (laughs) How many of you are rooting for Cam Newton and the Carolina Panthers? How many of you don't care about football and aren't even going to watch the game? Yeah! <laughs> I think your screaming actually woke up Gracie, so. Well, what's the difference between the two teams? One of the main differences is, is experience, right? Experience. The Denver Broncos have been to the Super Bowl. This is actually Peyton Manning's third Super Bowl, and some people think that he's going to retire. This might actually be his last game. I don't know. Nobody nobody has said anything. On the other hand, we have the Carolina Panthers. The Carolina Panthers. The who? The Carolina Panthers? Are they like a roller derby team or a double-A baseball team or something? Um, Well, for Cam Newton and the Carolina Panthers, this is their first Super Bowl appearance. This is only Newton's fifth year in the league. Uh, but they have a 17-1 and record this year. They've been playing awesome. Uh, they're almost unbeatable. So w- knowing all of that, all right, even if you don't know anything about football, turn to your neighbor right now and talk about who you think is going to win the Super Bowl today. And why? <laughs> okay. Who do you think? Who do you? Who do you think? is going to win. For Carolina, raise your hands, Carolina. And why? Shout out some reasons. They're better. They're better. The one that praised the hardest. The one that praised the Could be. Maybe God's, you know, from the South and he likes Carolina. Uh, how about the Denver Broncos? Who thinks of the Denver Broncos? And why do you think they're going to win? Peyton Manning. Maybe. <laughs> okay. Well, I do think that experience might have the edge here, but we'll have to wait and see. But we didn't come here to talk about football this morning. We came here to talk about Jesus. (laughs) Praise the Lord. (laughs) 
But the passage that we read today does have some relationship to today's game. Because it does seem like we've been here before, right? We talked a little bit about that during the children's message. In fact, just last week, Ben took us through the feeding of the 5,000. So here we have an almost identical miracle, the feeding of 4,000. In fact, some people think that the two events actually might have been the same. Some people actually think that there might have been like a mistranslation or some, maybe Mark heard the same story twice with slightly different facts and he said, well, they're not exactly the same, so let's just put them into the same gospel. Um, You know, they have slightly different details, but they're very similar. But I think if we take a, a little bit closer look, we'll see that there really are two separate miracles. There really are but for different reasons, but I'll explain that as we're going along. But we see in this passage that Jesus really is the servant. Jesus the servant is compassionate to our needs regardless of race, creed, or color. Jesus is compassionate to our needs regardless of race, creed, or color. Let's read this passage again. And I'm going to drink some water because I'm continuing to get to recover from a cold, so You'll notice that my voice gets a little froggy sometimes. I'm finally passing at adolescence. (laughs) Mark chapter 8, verse 1. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them, um, because some of them have come a long distance. Now it's obvious here that Jesus is responding in compassion. It says there he has he says himself, "I have compassion on these people." But we also see that his response here is different than his response in the feeding of the five thousand that he did two chapters ago. In Mark chapter 6, he said he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Like they, they were like sheep without a shepherd. He was looking towards their inner hunger, their hunger for peace, their hunger for leadership, their hunger for direction. But here he's actually responding to their physical hunger. After all, they've been listening to him for three days now, And they probably run out of whatever provisions they might have brought with them. But why did I say that he has compassion on them regardless of race, creed, or color? I believe one of the main differences between the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 is the geography, one, the geography, where it takes place, and two, the audience, who he is feeding. The difference in numbers, in resources, in leftovers are also all different different. But if we look back into chapter 7, we see that Jesus begins to minister not strictly in Jewish territory, but he begins to move out into Gentile territory as well. If you turn your outline over, uh, turn your outline over to the other side, uh, you'll see the rest of the verses of chapter 7 and 8 printed there. And uh, it's kind of divided up into six days, so as the, day, as the week goes on, you can read 
one of those sections per each day and just kind of ponder over those questions that, that are at the top. Um, what are some of the attitudes that Jesus wants us to be wary of? And what are some of the attitudes that Jesus wants us to emulate or follow after? Um, at the beginning of chapter 7, he has a run-in with the Pharisees. This is actually the, kind of the beginning of his negative encounters with the Pharisees. and The beginning of chapter 7. You know, maybe they take notice not only of his teaching and his miracles, but now also the crowds are beginning to form. Like thousands of people are beginning to follow him. Maybe they feel a little bit threatened by his popularity. So, in, in the beginning of chapter 7, they make a big deal about their eating with their hands and about cleansing and ceremonial cleansing, or to be more accurate, them being unclean. You know, it wasn't about safe food handling practices. It was about safe religious handling practices. But Jesus calls them hypocrites. Jesus calls them hypocrites, right to their face. Um, something that, you know, Christians are often called. Right? Because the Pharisees would obey the letter of the law and the traditions that they had set up, but they put aside things like compassion and love. Then we see in verses 25 through 30 that Jesus has a different kind of encounter with a Gentile, a Syrophoenician woman, it says. She might have been a person of mixed blood from Syria and Phoenicia, but she definitely wasn't a Jewish person as Jesus' conversation with, with her would indicate. Then, in verses 31 through 35, he heals a deaf and mute man as he's traveling through a region called the Decapolis, another predominantly Gentile region. This might have been close to the place where Jesus cast out the demon, demons and sent the demons into a herd of pigs. You remember that one back in chapter 5? Um, Good Jews would not be hurting pigs because they would be deemed unclean. So he was probably ministering in a Gentile area. And this area, the Decapolis, is probably close to where um, that miracle took place. So this crowd, uh, this, this feeding of the 4,000, this crowd of 4,000, might have consisted of a large number of Gentile listeners. Might have. So why another feeding of a large gathering? Why? Why do two, two miracles that are very similar? Well, Jesus is continually teaching the disciples, right? He's, he's always, whatever he does, it's a teaching opportunity for them. It's something for them to learn. If this is the second of two very super similar miracles, first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, what, what do you think Jesus might be teaching his disciples? Might he be wanting them to continue to grow in their faith, not only in who he is, but in what he wants to accomplish? And as Paul would put it, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. I think it's to show his disciples and us that Jesus is the servant to all. 
He's the servant to everyone, regardless of race, creed, or color. And, and we should as well. We should be as well. I want you to take a few moments and turn to your neighbor and share with them maybe a, one or two groups of people that you have difficulty in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with. Take, just take a few moments. Think about that and then share with somebody sitting next to you or nearby to you. Some people or some groups of people that you might have a challenge sharing the gospel with. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for sharing. And I, it seems as though almost everybody was talking, so that's good that you're having some interaction. It's not easy to, 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 to share about that. I mean, it's, it might be easy to think about people, right? Think about groups of people that you might have difficulty sharing with. But it's hard to actually, like, talk about it, like, admit it. I think everybody has prejudices in their life. And, and the first thing to overcome those prejudices is to admit it. Just to say, say yeah, you know, I, I'm afraid of this type of person, or I'm, I don't usually associate with those people, or, or whatever. But you know, Jesus wants to, us to break through those barriers. He wants us to... to um, to be the church, to reach out to every single person, regardless of race, creed, or color, to not have fear over that, but to really give ourselves as Jesus has given himself to us. Because Jesus doesn't want, simply want to minister to the nations, but Jesus the servant invites us to enter into service as well. He invites us to enter into that service. He invites us to share with other people. Verse 4, his disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Where, you know, Jesus, we're in the desert here. We're in this wilderness. Where are we going to get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few fish also. Sorry. They had a few fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told, uh, told the disciples to distribute them. Now, the disciples have been here before, right? We just talked about it. They, you know, it's like, been there, done that, right? 
this is their second trip to the Super Bowl, if you will. You would think that they would have learned from the first miracle that Jesus could do, right? You would think that experience would have an edge. But, no. Jesus, of course, repeats his questioning from the first miracle. What do we got? What, what do we have? What are our resources? How many times have you said to God, I don't have enough? I don't have what it takes. I don't think this is going to work. I don't know if we're going to make ends meet. I don't know if I can qualify for that school or that job or whatever it is. Whatever your reasoning, you think you just don't have enough to get it done. I think about our building search. And so much of our discussion is about what we can and can't afford. But I think Jesus is asking us the same question. What do you have? And then he invites us into this amazing place of service. He's saying, don't you believe? Don't you trust? Don't you understand? He says, watch this. You know, he's not, a, he's not a magician. He's not David Copperfield. He's not some Las Vegas entertainer or some sleight-of-hand artist. Jesus is a servant who is inviting us into that service. If your faith is big enough, and you don't need much, about the size of a mustard seed is all that you need. But then when we do believe, when we act on that faith, when we bring forth those seven loaves and those few small fish, Jesus, the Son of God, provides abundantly for our needs. Jesus, the Son of God, provides abundantly for our needs. Chapter, uh, verse 8 says, The people ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 people were present. Is there any question that Jesus can provide abundantly? Is there any question that Jesus does provide abundantly? Just as with the first miracle, there are leftovers. And Mark makes it a point to say that there were seven basketfuls of broken pieces left over. Now, there are two different words used for basket between the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. In the feeding of the 5,000, the word used for basket is a small hand basket, like a little bread basket, you know, something that you would pass bread back and forth with. In the feeding of the 4,000, the word uh, used is for a large basket, in fact, like a hamper-sized basket. The same word is used uh, in Acts when, when Paul was placed into a basket and lowered from a window. The same, same size basket. So, essentially, it's big enough to hold a person. That's how big it is. It's huge. Lots of leftovers. In fact, there might have been more leftovers from the second miracle than there were from the first miracle. Although, you know, there were less people in the second miracle. I don't know if there's a difference here. Some people make a point of the numbers. You know, people ask, Do the, are the numbers... Um, 
significant. The number 12, the number 7, the number 5 and 2, and, you know, all of these different numbers. Um, in the first feeding, there are 12 baskets left over, perhaps signifying the nation of Israel, 12 tribes of Israel. In the second feeding, there are seven baskets, perhaps signifying perfection or unity, especially while ministering to Gentiles as well, Gentile and Jew, the unity of all creation. Um, scripture doesn't really interpret these numbers in, the, in these particular stories for us, at least not too much. The numbers 12 and 7 are significant, but we should be careful to not over-interpret unless it's specifically noted. So be careful not to over-interpret. You know, like when Jesus interprets the parables for the disciples, he's pretty specific about those. However, this, that doesn't diminish the power of the miracles. The idea is that God takes a small amount of resources, multiplies them to feed a large number of people, and even then there are leftovers. God provides abundantly. What a wonderful reminder to the disciples of a valuable lesson. God's provisions are abundant. And when we have need, he provides. Now then Jesus takes the disciples uh, back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, where again he has a second run-in with the Pharisees. We begin to notice a subtle change in the narrative here. As Jesus' popularity with the crowd begins, it brings the religious leadership down on him. But Jesus, the leader, responds to the task of the Pharisees. He responds to their, their questioning. He says he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. And Jesus, he sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given. The Pharisees came to question Jesus, to test him, to demand that he give them a sign from heaven. I guess, you know, I guess the healings and the exorcisms and the feedings and the Holy Spirit descending on him uh, at his baptism, you know, they just weren't enough for them. They wanted something more. This kind of reminds me of the current presidential race. Yeah? Some people don't really want to know what the candidates think. They just want to trap them into saying something stupid so that they can have a soundbite to use against them. Jesus' react, Jesus's reaction is, is classic. He, he sighs deeply. He sighs deeply. I'm not sure, I, I'm not sure about you, but I, I find Jesus' reaction a little bit puzzling. You know, I mean, it seems as though, you know, the Pharisees are just kind of beginning to, to ask question to question. So why does he have such an, a negative response? Well, like all written accounts, it's difficult to get, emotion, to get the emotional, nonverbal communication that's going on here. It's difficult to communicate that in written form. That's why you should always be careful about 
what you write in an email, and who you send it to, <laughs> or a text these days. Um, maybe Jesus is responding to what Jesus to what Jesus not only perceives but knows in his heart is their motivation. He perceives something, non-emotional, non-verbal communication, but he also knows in their in his heart what their motivation is. He knows what their heart is about. In essence, they're asking him for credentials. They want him to prove that he, he is who people are starting to say he is. That's like us, isn't it? We want proof that God is real, that Jesus is who he said he was, that this whole Christian God thing isn't some magic trick or some fairy tale. It comes down to faith, right? It comes down to faith. Jesus is sighing at the lack of faith that so many people, not just the religious leaders, demonstrate time and time again. That inherent skepticism is what Jesus was disappointed in. Now here are the religious leaders, the ones who are supposed to be leading the people to God. Not only demonstrating a lack of faith, but almost a hostility, a hostility to the genuine article. Now, in defense of the Pharisees, they didn't want to just blindly follow the next guy who claimed to be Messiah, because in their day, there were plenty of them. There were plenty of false messiahs. The thing is, Jesus, Jesus didn't try to call attention to himself. He wasn't advertising you know, he wasn't like running big uh, uh, coliseum events to bring people together. In fact, wherever he went, whoever he healed, what was his direction to them after healing them? He said, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. He didn't want undue attention brought to himself. No, people came to him because he was healing them. He was casting out demons. He was teaching with authority. Jesus was the real deal. He is the real deal. And rather than responding to God, the Pharisees' hearts were hardened. And so what was Jesus' response to their hard hearts? Sorry, no deal. No miracle for you. You're not really interested. You really aren't. Even if I did show you a sign, you wouldn't believe it. You would ask for another one, probably. And then another, and then another, and then another. So what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do? Well, he hops in the boat with the boys, and he crosses to the other side of the lake again. And as they're traveling to the other side, an interesting discussion breaks out among the disciples. Jesus, the leader, cautions against the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. Verse 13, he says, And then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it's 
because we have no bread. (laughs) Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you thinking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. And Jesus said to them, Do you still not understand? Do you still not understand? Two things seem to be consistent about these stories, these three stories that we've read. Boats and bread, right? They're always in a boat going somewhere. They're always talking about bread. (laughs) On their boat ride over, they discovered they don't have enough bread. In fact, they only have one loaf between them, and Jesus makes a rather peculiar statement. He says, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. What? What? What what are you talking about? What is Jesus talking about? Do you ever feel like that when you're reading the Gospels, you're reading what Jesus is saying? Like, what is Jesus talking about? Why doesn't he just spell things out? You know, I've been, I've been learning and studying the guitar for about 45 years now. I'm, I'm almost there. <laughs> I've, still, I've still got lots to learn. But through the years, I've learned that I can't learn something well right away, the first time through. Very seldom do I learn things at the first pass. It takes repetition and study and practice and trial and error. But eventually, I may get it a little bit. You know, even if someone shows me exactly what I need to do, where to place my fingers, which strings to pluck, it takes me a few times to to really kind of get it. And I think that's what's happening here. Jesus, the leader, Jesus, the teacher, in these three events is demonstrating to the disciples exactly where he is leading them. He is showing them not only what they need to be, as a disciple, and that is growing faith, but he's warning them against what destroys and diminishes that faith. And that is yeast, or leaven, of the Pharisees and of Herod. Now, what is the yeast of the Pharisees? Well, what is yeast? What does it do? Okay, so yeast is a, actually it's a bacteria. And it's, it's alive. And they use yeast and they put it into bread dough to make it rise. So the reason why you have nice, fluffy, white bread is because there's yeast in it. Without the yeast, it would be flat, like uh, matzah or naan. So this is, uh, this is yeast. This is the effective yeast. And what is the yeast of the Pharisees? Um, well, you know, even a little bit of yeast, and it just takes a little bit, infects the whole, infiltrates the whole, the whole dough. Right, Anthony? You've been making bread recently, right? 
it, it, it will impact the whole dose. So even a little bit of doubt, even a little bit of lack of faith will infiltrate your whole being. That's what Jesus is saying here. What, what happened with his encounter with the Pharisees? He, he exposed their lack of faith. He exposed their lack of faith. Um, it's also about skepticism, about doubt, about wanting physical proof, about wanting evidence, credentials. In two other places in the gospel, Jesus also talks about the yeast of the Pharisees as being their teaching, their supposed traditions um, of the elders. And in doing so, they were being hypocritical. So Jesus is warning us, don't be like the Pharisees. Don't be like them. Don't do that. Don't let your doubt, your trust in only what you see or hear, your intellect, your traditions, get in the way of truly and fully experiencing the power and wonder of God. Jesus said, didn't we feed 5,000 with five loaves and had 12 baskets of leftovers? And didn't we feed 4,000 with seven loaves and have seven baskets left over? Is there any question who Jesus is and what kind of person, what kind of God he is? You know, if we can't trust God with the simplest of things, our everyday provision, what can we, what can we trust God with? And finally, he asks that very convic- convicting question. Do you still not understand? you still not understand? I think that last question is a question that Jesus asks us every day. He asks us the same question every day. Do you still not understand? Do you still not believe? If we have the wrong picture of Jesus, we won't look to him to fill our needs. But if we begin to understand and believe, we will begin to hunger for more. We will begin to hunger for more. Not more bread, not more physical things, not more material gain, but for more of Jesus. For more of Jesus. He is the bread of life. He is the living water. Are you hungry and thirsty for the right things? Are you hungry and thirsty for the right things? Jesus, the servant, is here to answer. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, thank you for this amazing miracle. And while um, we ask the question, why the repetition, uh, I think we do have an answer. There is a reason, and it's a wonderful reason. Jesus wants us to reach out and, and, and touch the lives of other people, people that we're afraid of, people that we may never talk to or we may never think we would talk to. And yet, because of your love for us, you help us to overcome those barriers. And you provide for our needs and for their needs abundantly. Help us to believe that every day in every way. Thank you for your great love for us. In Jesus' name.